0: diversified. And then you can translate that to the corporate and private sector. You need to be building more sustainable business models in this market, right? Whether that's new products, new ventures, alternative revenue lines. Uh, the second part is you need to be pruning your melt, austerity. Uh, from a government perspective, we pretty much know that is if they're revising the budget or they revise the budget. Spending plans will probably be curbed. Um and that is gonna obviously have development consequences both from a human perspective and in terms of social infrastructure. And then if you're in the private sector, obviously you're cost cutting, you're renegotiating contracts in terms of your supplies, you're you're looking at synergies with other competitors, sharing infrastructure. We might even move to into the extreme scenario of retrenchment of workers in the global oil market. So those are all things that you have to deal with.
1: So, Mrs. Rolake, here, Filani, thank you for Thanks. joining me on the Avalon podcast.
0: You're welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Okay, so the price of oil in Nigeria has dropped to about $18 per barrel. Now, is this just because of the COVID-19 pandemic or it has a little to do with um, the price war between um, the Russians and the Saudis um, that is pushing the price... Um, of oil globally so low that um, certain countries like ours are beginning to bleed
0: yeah I think it's a combination and reflection um, of many things actually which have sort of uh, a domino effect so of course to be honest over the last years global demand has been quite sluggish in terms of global demand for energy and for fuel particularly in emerging markets like India and China Um, And then the second thing, of course, is that, you know, in the past almost a decade now, we've seen the U.S. become one of the biggest exporters of oil and gas globally. And so adding to the pool of supplies around the world as a result of shale production um, and the advent of technology in that space in North America. And, of course, then you had the counter which is OPEC and OPEC Plus. Of course, OPEC being the traditional cartel of major oil producers who have attempted for many years to control the price of oil and balance oil markets by, by using demand and supply as drivers. And then, of course, in the Alaska, they also brought in what they call the OPEC Plus, the OPEC, non-OPEC allies like Russia and others. And all of this has been in an attempt, in one grand engineering attempt to really balance oil markets. And that really just means ensure that demand almost matches supply. But as you know, in the world we're living, there's a lot of global economic uncertainty and the the impact of the coronavirus has been quite monumental. Um, but it hasn't been the sole reason. It's just really added a serious downside factor for oil prices. Um, so what we're seeing now is a reflection of all these things I, I, I've just mentioned coming together, coming to the head. Mm. Um, but we are really in dangerous territory, obviously. And it's not just Nigeria, to be honest. A lot of the other countries in Africa also that have um, oil as a main commodity export or depend of it as for the bulk of their forex revenue.
1: So, yeah, I'm glad that you talked about um, OPEC. Um, President Trump, of course, has been critical of OPEC in some of his commentaries. Um, Do you get the sense that um, OPEC is beginning to lose some sort of um, relevance in the global energy market? Because, um, for instance, even though Russia seems to be some sort um, of a part of um, um, OPEC now, it's completely disregarded, um, you know, OPEC's agreement not um, you know, to pump uh, more oil into the market. And of course, whether or not OPEC decides to cut at this moment or stop countries from producing optimally, it's going to have very little effect on the price of um, global oil. Um, because like you said, the, the American shale and of course the swing states, the Saudis, um, can do whatever they want to determine the price globally. So do, do you get the sense that um, OPEC is just becoming a big dog without... Um, Teeth any longer.
0: Lots of back and no bite, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I mean, it's it's interesting that you say. Do I get the sense that OPEC is becoming a big dog without teeth? Because I think OPEC has sort of been it. You you could have characterized OPEC like that even like two years ago or three years ago. Mm. Um, I think it's relevant as an organization that's really able to influence the market in the long term is really being brought into question many times over the last few years, and especially because you have. You see, the way we have the global balance of power, even from an economic perspective, you have sort of centers of economic activity. And in the last decade, emerging markets, particularly in the the BRIC countries, when you look at Russia, China, India, none of whom are members of OPEC, have really been a driving force in global demand and supply. So you know it really begs the question whether OPEC can really significantly do anything and the reality is in as much as there is the power of the collective when it comes to an individual sovereign nation's own interest such as Russia for instance Russia has huge domestic constituencies and even within the Kremlin the Russian government there are those who do not believe that Russia's strategy of aligning with OPEC and the Saudis in terms of curbing production is sound mm. and You know, I mean, we don't know the extent to which Putin has come under pressure, but the reality is Russia had felt for a very long time that um, this strategy of uh, quotas and bringing OPEC plus was allowing the UK to steal market share from other producers globally. And it was never really going to be sustainable. Um, so this is not the first time the future of OPEC has come into question. And if OPEC as an organization cannot achieve its aims without inviting even non-members to balance the market, then you really have to question the rationale and the logic of having the organization. Um, having said that, uh, it's not really a battle of OPEC as much as it is individual countries all trying to secure their own commercial economic interests. Um, so you had the Saudis and the Russians playing, you know, this price war, splashing prices at this time. But actually, many of the other producers like Nigeria, the West African producers, a lot of the producers of light sea crude, are also in the price war. They may be on the fringes, but frankly, everybody wants to move cargoes. Everybody wants to sell. Nobody wants a supply glut or inventories to build up. Yeah. So everybody's splashing prices. And frankly... The impact of the coronavirus is not just uh, a function of the movement of people around the world and trade and travel, but it's also it's not just the travel and movement of people and restrictions around human movement, but also the impact it has it has had on global tr- trade, such as straight through the Straits of Hormuz, which is one of the key transit points for global oil supply. And the fact that everybody's trying to offload cargoes, if you are a major producer that has a market in North America, or maybe used to have a market in North America, that market is pretty much dead because North America is essentially self-sufficient where fossil fuels are concerned, where energy is concerned. Um, If you're now shifting, if you then have to shift your focus to Europe, competition is huge there because everybody wants to apply to alternative markets. So when competition is huge, what do you offer? You try and offer the best terms, you know. Um, is it buy one get one free? Is it slashing the price significantly? Yeah.
1: Um,
0: and then domestically, what you then need to try and do is compensate on the production front. If you can't compete on the price front, then you want. To, but then your ability to quickly ramp up your own barrels locally is also limited by other things. So the reality is everybody's in a bind, right? Um, and even the low cost producers in North America are starting to feel the heat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this problem and this price war is not going to disappear anytime soon because we also have no clear line of sight as to how this global pandemic is is going to materialize. Are we in the worst phase of it? Is, are we still going to see a peak in many countries around the world? Are we flattening the curve, as they said? Um, so there's so much uncertainty right now. And to be honest, I don't have the answers. We've seen some doomsday scenario predictions of you know zero dollars per barrel <laughs> um, etc yeah and I think we will actually had close to that in, in some very specific markets around the world
1: I mean yes you're pretty much correct because the IHs you know have said they expect that the price um, of, of brent crude will fall to as low as ten dollars a barrel in you know sometime in April um, mm-hmm. if things go in this current um, trajectory and of course that mm-hmm. the demand um, in the second quarter is going to drop by about 16. Um, million barrels a day. Now, I mean, the question I, I'd like to ask is how much of this is dependent on the productivity in China and in India? Because like you said, um, you're not sure how much time these um, countries are going to take to flatten the so-called infective infectious curve. Um, yeah. But if productivity returns to India and to China and their factories yeah. are working optimally, is there a chance that we'll begin to see um, prices gradually begin yeah. to climb?
0: Yeah, I would say that China, first of all, be very interesting to look at because China is now apparently on the rebound where the coronavirus is concerned. Being the first country to have been majorly affected under the source of the pandemic, actually, is now on the rebound in terms of domestic production and manufacturing, uh, but I still think that a return, a normalization of demand in that market is still gonna be a while. And then India has just really over the last week or so gone into lockdown. So we're still in for the longer haul as far as that big emerging market is concerned. Um so I, I see continued destruction of demand, so to speak. Mm. Um and I don't see a short term reprieve. That's that's my view. So, um I, I think Prices, because we're just seeing a significant retrenchment in production uh, everywhere I just for instance heard today that the Nazi groups are also being rocked, the shale producers are being rocked and that what will happen is that over time as people shutting wells flash down costs uh, trim their, their manpower um, and we see vessels sort of slow down and demand slow down what will then happen is that Will probably start to introduce a new flow under the old price, mm. but that flow will still be quite low. So whether we settle around thirty to forty dollars a barrel um, towards the end of the year, um, that will probably be because the the low prices. In fact, the 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 saying is that low prices lead to lower prices, <laughs> and then they lead to rebound, which then leads to higher prices. Mm. Uh, Right, So low prices force producers to stop producing or to cut back, which in turn then leads to some sort of rebalancing of the market without any intervention, for instance, from OPEC. And then over time, as prices start to bounce back up because supply has now been significantly curbed, then we may start to see a rebalance in the market and production keeps that. So we might get back into a virtuous cycle for mm. the industry. But I think another key market to watch will be North America, because America's coronavirus uh, challenge is really pretty
1: serious. Mm.
0: Um, and the extent to which, which that may be affecting production and the export or offshore still remains to be seen. Uh, but it's certainly likely to be impacted. Um, but we also should not forget that a large part of America's uh, sales are actually domestic sales too yeah. Um, and so it does have the market to sustain its industry to some extent and actually the reason why that is very very important is because countries like Nigeria if you want to be let's even talk about looking at restructuring the oil industry or the oil market is how can you build these centers of domestic consumption that reduce your reliance on external demand um, especially when you face an economic crisis like yeah. we're seeing. Today. I'm glad you
1: even got that because uh, I was going to ask you that question. But now that you're here, um please, by all means.
0: Sorry, please, could you could you repeat that point?
1: Yeah, I said I'm um, I was gonna ask you that particular question, but you know now mm-hmm. that you're here, so please by all means. Cause...
0: Yeah, and and so th- this is a very interesting um, analogy um or rather point of comparison because one of the reasons that America's shale oil production or general oil production, I think up today America is doing like 8 million to 9 million barrels a day. I think it's been neck and neck with Saudi and in, in one instance at various points has overtaken Saudi yes.
1: um,
0: at various points in time. One of the reasons it's been able to do that so effectively on the export front, on the production front, is that it has essentially built a very supportive ecosystem for the industry to thrive as a government. And if you look at the value chain in America, whether it be those that do storage, the pipeline construction companies, the EPC, the engineers, the rig, the contractors, that entire ecosystem has been very well-supported by legislation and regulation that has enabled and incentivized economic activity in the oil and gas sector Um, and so that has actually allowed America to steal market share and flood the market Um, and and that's fantastic because it's a huge economy roughly 300 million people in the US Um, and it's been able to find ways to monetize the bulk of its production domestically through industry course, industrialization um, and other means of what we call local beneficiation, that is creating value from your raw commodities. Yeah. And I think that is an area that Nigeria and really Africa is still grappling with. Um, and it's, it's really like a catch-22. First of all, regulatory and economic challenges, or maybe in some cases, security challenges, which means you can't even produce to your projection where from a budget perspective. Yeah. Um, the second thing is the enabling environment for that production to take place or to incentivize the FDI. And that's not just the FDI. It's also what I call the DDI, right? The Domestic Direct Investment. Because by and large, foreign and local investors in many industries face similar issues. Um, so we're also facing the regulatory issues. Um, and then there's the political environment that intermittently... Just creates a lot of uncertainty and it means that investors are reluctant to invest for the long term. And so they prefer to use markets like ours for speculative uh, plays. And, and so we're not able to track and really sustain the FDI we need. And even where we have FDI, it's mostly sort of. Uh, expansion products as opposed to new investment decisions that are being taken. And that is really worrying because in the long term you'll see that our production is not ramping, ramping up and actually from a production point of view we're flattening the curve. Hmm. Um, and and so the question for Nigeria is how do we get past this? What What are the bottlenecks we need to unlock? We we know that we're dependent on a cyclical industry so none of this, what is happening right now should be catching the country by surprise. Of course, uh, COVID-19 is kind of a black swan type event, uh, by which I mean low likelihood but high impact. I mean such high impact that everybody everywhere around the world is impacted. Um, But even in just terms of uh, economic downturns and recessions, these things should not be catching up by surprise. We have several cycles of this. We've had two or three cycles, maybe two cycles in my lifetime because I was born in the 80s. And so Nigeria has, like any company operating in the old industry, like in Nigeria, it's a company operating in the old industry. You know you work in a cyclical industry. How are you going to diversify your economy? What sort of measures are you going to put in place to save for a rainy day so you can cushion the effects of some of the things we're seeing now? Um, how are you going to sort of uh, improve the willingness and ability of your tax base to really deliver the revenue projections that you are you, you hope for? Um, I think those are some of the challenges we we have that we need to look at. Um, over the years there've been some improvements in the business environment. Obviously we've gone up in the rankings thanks to the work that people like the presidential enabling business presidential business environment enabling council is being PEPEC and others, they've done some really great, fantastic work. Uh but I think we still have a long way to go. And then I think the final point I wanted to make on, on this particular issue with the oil market is really around uh, peak oil and the need to really take the energy transition seriously, mm. um, and the fact that most economies around the world are looking at balancing and diversifying their fuel mix and their energy sources, and so we can't say that we didn't know or we were caught unawares. And so, while African economies are not just going to pivot overnight from fossil fuels to renewables, I do think we need to look at other attempts to industrialize through improving gas, the gas sector, looking at off-grid and mini-grid solutions to our electricity crisis due to gas supplies being problematic, occasionally upstream, and just looking at ways to ensure that whether it's for industry, for commercial and industrial, for residential, for rural areas, that we have an energy solution that is tailored to the needs of those different demographics. Um, and, and so the bigger picture is like you know global oil markets are in trouble is this dependency on oil sustainable of course it's not sustainable we've seen that and we've known that for decades and now is really the time to start doing the work
1: uh i mean i like the point that you you, you know you made about um you know not being able to save for the rainy day because essentially um we're in an industry that always has um, a boom and bust cycle so essentially we couldn't do um, what the russians did which was to simply inject about 150 billion dollars um Absolutely. you know when the saudis tried to crash um prices uh, is, you know yeah. but b- before I, I move to the next question you also talked about the fact that um, our ability to be able to create some um, sort of local demand Um, you know, for the energy market will also be, um, you know, essential. Um, Every time we talk about the fact that um, petroleum products are smuggled to countries like Niger, Chad, um, sometimes Burkina Faso, um, Ghana, um, you know, and and Benin Republic. Um, So that tells me that there's some sort of market Um, for Nigerian oil in these countries. How in the world can we capitalize um, on those markets and, you know, steal the market share, if you'd like, away from smugglers um, and the people who seem to be cutting us short?
0: Well, that's a difficult one, um, to be honest. Um, The reality is the market domestically is distorted downstream um, because we still essentially have subsidies in place. Right, regardless yeah. of, of what is going on, what we still do have, whether you want to see there's partial subsidy regime or just a subsidy, we do have subsidies in place. So those market distortions are inevitable. Um, and of course, subsidies have the effect of discouraging investment in parts of the value chain and the downstream infrastructure system um, that needs that investment. Um, the other issue is that subsidies also Sort of source, uh, suck and drain resources that could otherwise have been used to invest domestically in long term infrastructure, um, even for the sector. Um, What is the solution to that? To be honest, I personally sit on the side of full deregulation and liberalization of oil markets. To be honest, I don't think there's a shortcut, right? (laughs) Because the reality is. Let me let me let me give you a scenario. Even if today all prices plunge to zero dollars a barrel, right? Yeah. It will still take a bit of time for the impact of the falling oil price. Or I mean, zero dollars a barrel is extreme, but it will still take a while for the drop in the Brent benchmark and the other crudes to translate into lower wide product and petroleum product prices. Right? Yeah. So, this whole push for liberalization is the fact that, let the market determine demand and supply. Right? Yeah. Because then what will happen over time, if that happens, And people invest in the pipelines and the storage infrastructure and the transportation and logistics needed, over time, prices will come down anyway. Because Mm. the efficiencies will improve in the market, there will be competition. Over time, prices will come down. Mm. Um, And I think. Part of what is initially perhaps informing the government strategy is the fact that you know there are all these other costs that you lay on until the pricing regime and the deck, you know, your landing costs for importing petrol, and then by the time you get it here and there and there and there. And so you layer on the, all these bits on top of it, but the reality is that is the only way we can move forward in this market. That is my own school of thought, thought and I know there are others who, who see
1: things. I, I tend very to, different. yeah, I mean, I, I tend to align with that um, school of thought. Um, mm. I mean, you know, before before the Trump administration um, came into office. Um, Western countries, you know, were attempting to pivot towards a lot more clean energy or a world that, um, you know, seemed to leave a lot more on clean energy and moved away from fossil fuel. Um, but of course, it seems like the Trump administration um, has shown, um, I mean, if you'd like some sort of disdain for for clean energy, if you'd like, um, so are there chances that the global economy will still be dependent on energy in 10 years from now as it is today? Um, seeing that, um, you know, the Americans have uh, essentially will be wasting eight years to capitalize on an investment in clean energy. So, I mean, will the market uh, would, would oil determine global productivity as it's doing today, 10 years from now?
0: Um, I mean, I think obviously the relevance of oil in the global economy will still be there in a decade's time. Um, I, I don't think we can get away from it. But I think what we'll see is a, a more diversification in the fuel mix, especially in Europe. And we're already seeing that. with renewables in places like Germany and Scandinavia and, and France, etc. And in the UK, of course, um, and even in some parts of Eastern Europe but to a lesser extent, so it's it's really about what industries are going to be the drivers of that change away from oil. Um, I, I definitely think gas is a transition fuel, and we're seeing it with emerging technologies, uh, particularly for CNG um, and small-scale LPG or small-scale LNG for transportation. I think the transport sector will be a game-changer, just because in terms of the shared demand coming from that sector um, and global transportation, um, which also... Tracks economic growth, um, so I think gas is going to become a much more central fuel, and it is, um, and of course renewables. But I also think that for certain markets, especially in Africa, renewables will be very niche. Um, and when I say niche, it will be specifically, for instance, for certain commercial and industrial users. And for the Nigerian market, for instance, I think renewables are really going to be a highly competitive alternative to off-grid diesel generation. That is a generated market. Renewables haven't fully been able to compete with the grid from a pricing perspective, but certainly in terms of diesel, um, solar, for instance, in terms of diesel, it's a no-brainer. Solar is much cheaper hmm. than diesel as a backup. So what we're also going to be seeing is more hybrid development. Um, and we're already seeing that in the CNI space, in the commercial industrial space, with some captive power projects, in the solar uh, industry for instance. Um, So it's really about, I don't know when exactly peak oil will happen. I know the International Energy Agency and some others like BP, they have a view of when oil demand will peak and start flattening and then maybe many years after will start to decline. Um, But I think we'll also see a rebalancing of the energy markets globally. Uh, with a centralization on other hydrocarbons like gas, um, and then, um, a move towards low carbon fuels and then more environmental, environmentally sustainable fuels. And we're already seeing some insights into that. So for instance, the IMO brought out this regulation this year that, um, the bunker fuel used in shipping had to, could not be more than, I think it was point zero five percent sulfur content, which means that, um, a lot of the, uh the users of Bunker 4 had to either convert the technology on the ships or adapt scrubbers into the technology on the ships or switch their demand from high sulfur, heavy fuels to low sulfur fuels. Mm. Um, that was a global regulatory change in regime, and I think we're seeing that there's more recognition of some of the environmental impact of fossil fuels. And so some global organizations and agencies are starting to introduce legislation that will help govern, that may actually drive fuel demand and diversify fuel demand in the global economy. Um, and domestically in Africa, regulators are struggling to catch up. I mean, even legislation around the sulfur content in just your ordinary gasoline and all of that, um, you know, that is still being realized, and many of our markets are not just the sophisticated, but there are more um, environmental and health regulations, and I, I expect to see an uptick in that. And a lot of that will drive demand and obviously supply. And to be honest, a lot of that is also just consumer awareness about how competitive fossil fuels um and renewables will be. The other challenge, of course, now with that all prices tanking so low is – whether, um, other alternative for energy sources like solar and. Are- that competitive anymore mm. with the falling price of crude oil, but I think we're still very much in early stages. We don't know how this market is going to end, um, and yeah. But I, you know, I'm very much of an ad- advocate of a balanced oil mix, and I think different industries will have different requirements where that is concerned.
1: Okay, so finally, before before I let you go, um, I understand that um, you know Nigeria seems to break even um, at twenty three dollars per per barrel. Um, in a situation where you know yeah. oil prices are already um dropping below eighteen dollars per barrel, and it's likely to go to ten dollars per barrel, what does the future look like? And by future, I mean yeah. um, the next um, I was gonna, couple of I months. I
0: was gonna suggest an alternative perspective on that. Nigeria breaks even, maybe an average, but it's it's hard to say Nigeria breaks even at a certain amount per barrel. Is that? are you referring to from a producer's perspective or the country's own break-even? Because we know what the country had at its break-even. Um, so, and it depends whether you're talking about ultra-deep water, offshore, onshore. The, the cost components and dynamics are very different. So the break-even is also very depending on the physical geographical location of your oil production. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that $23 a barrel is quite generalist, but I, I think it's somewhere around that. Yeah. Um, but look, the truth is we're already in dire waters. Um, and any company or anybody who is working in the oil and gas industry today is doing two things, right? Or should be doing the two things as a country. You need to be diversified, and then you can translate that to the corporate-private sector. You need to be building more sustainable business models in this market, right? Whether that's new products, new ventures, alternative revenue lines. Uh, the second part is you need to be pruning your belt, austerity. Uh, from a government perspective, we pretty much know that is. They, they're revising the budget or they revise the budget. Spending plans will probably be curbed. Um, And that is going to obviously have development consequences, both from a human perspective and in terms of social infrastructure. And then if you're in the private sector, obviously you're cost-cutting. You're renegotiating contracts in terms of your supplies. You're you're looking at synergies with other competitors, sharing infrastructure. We might even move into the extreme scenario of retrenchment of workers in the global oil market. So those are all things that you have to deal with. Um, if you're a leader of a country or a business <laughs> in this market. Um, I don't want to be drawn on where all the prices will average out at the end of this year, but I would be very surprised if we see up to an average of $40 a barrel.
1: Fascinating way to to end the conversation. Thank you so mm-hmm. much, uh, Mrs. Rolak, Akin uh, Filani, for joining me on this episode of the podcast. Thank you for your insights.
0: Yeah, very welcome. I really enjoyed that. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you.